I'm reminded how huge the world of writing is and that you can pull anything off, really, you know, if your heart is in it and you work at it enough, anything is possible on the page. The Feminist Press is a partner of Fierce Women Writing. Founded in 1970 and celebrating their 50th anniversary, the Feminist Press seeks to create a world where everyone recognizes themselves in a book. A nonprofit and independent publisher, they support storytelling that ignites movements and inspires social transformation. The Feminist Press lifts up insurgent and marginalized voices from around the world to build a more just future. Learn more about their books at feministpress.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, a podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Lacey Crawford. Lacey Crawford is the author of a new memoir that's out now called Notes on a Silencing and the novel Early Decision. She lives in Southern California with her family. Welcome to the show, Lacey. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Lacey, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? So they've changed over the years, of course. I've been at this for a long time. Right now I have three... um, fairly young children. They're 10, 8, and 5. So the ideal conditions are having my children at school, (laughs) to be perfectly honest with you, in a place where I know they're safe and I don't have to be thinking about them or worrying about them. And once that happens, so when I was working on my memoir, I would drop them off at school. It was exactly 22 minutes from my youngest son's preschool to my door. So I could be on my sofa with my laptop in my lap by 25 minutes after I kissed him goodbye. And that would give me exactly three hours. And during that three hours, I do nothing else, think about nothing else, don't even get up and walk around. Wow, that's incredible. So you just delve into that. It's the only time I had. It's it, that that was the space for me, and I I did find that uh, fairly quickly. It's almost I know Stephen King has written about this in his book on writing, but it's almost like my unconscious knew that that was the time that we would be going back down to the well. So by the time I drove home, I was already sort of switching off the radio and getting in my head, and um, and then ready to to you know hit the keyboard by the time I was home. Why do you write? I wish I knew the answer to that. I think growing up, I remember being very young and, of course, loving reading the way we all did and loving books. But I remember being really troubled by moments of hypocrisy, by even the sort of very benign thing that adults do of not telling children the truth because the children aren't old enough to handle the context or appreciate the gravity of a situation. I, I, I have always been frustrated by the stories we tell that aren't true. Um, And I don't mean lies, I mean more like uh, what counts as civility. And I have been drawn to 
um, writers who who's try to get at that, either in fiction or nonfiction. And I think that my writing, which is really just a way of being in the world, is about trying to understand the things that I have taken for granted or assumed were true that actually don't speak to the truth at all. And for whatever reason, I'm not able to think my way through these things. I have to sort of draft my way through them. What are your best writing tips? It's taken me so long to get to a place where I felt I could produce work that I could stand behind, work that I was proud of. And there were so many years when I tried everything. Um, so I, I really think my best writing tip is keep trying everything. <laughs> that sounds like it's a, a way to, to dodge the question, but truly it's not. And um, for me, part of trying everything was doing writing that <clears throat> wasn't uh, my personal writing, was doing writing for pay. So I, I have written for nonprofit organizations for a long period of time. I did corporate writing, um, made my living doing that, and also uh, working with high school seniors on college applications, which was what gave me the the source material for my first book or a novel. Um, and so I, th I think sometimes when I was unable to find my way to the work that I wanted to be doing privately, by training myself to do other people's writing for pay that I didn't really um, feel so invested in. Of course, I wanted to do a good job, but the stakes weren't that high. I really taught myself to consider the reader. What does the reader need in this case? And how can I deliver that? And it's a very straightforward and kind of binary set of questions, but that has a lot of use for, for what it is that I'm trying to write more recently. So my my best writing tips are write anything and everything you can in every possible direction and try everything because you will find your way to it. I did, at least. And I think if I can, everyone can. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? Even the question is scary. <laughs> I think we imagine blocks to be uh, like a kind of fog, you know, that descends on you and it becomes so difficult to write. I have given up writing for years of my life, some of the years I was just referring to when I, I did writing for pay, but I gave up on trying to write fiction, which was my first love. Um, I gave up on writing anything that uh, really felt too close or too hot or too important to me. There was a lot of sadness and frustration in those years. Um, but I think it's good, ultimately, that I was willing to let myself uh, take a little time and space. For me, Sometimes being blocked is a, is a matter of not yet knowing the story that I wish to tell. So I think we need to be compassionate with ourselves and maybe not consider a block as a wall or a crisis, but rather uh, a sense that something is on its way. I mean, it's like the stillness before the storm, um, because in my case, every single time I haven't had a writing project. I've been convinced I'll never write again. And I'm always going to go back to graduate school and finish my PhD. And I even send crazy emails to people asking about their departments and have conversations and have coffee with people. And then I get sort of halfway down that road and have an idea. And I don't write anyone back, you know, for six months because I'm writing another book. So, so I do think if we consider a block to be not a crisis, but a part of process and, um, and that patience, patience will lead us through. What about editing and revising tips? Do it. Do it as often as you can. Find people you trust. I know that everybody says this, but um, 
I've never been a part of a writing group. I think that would be too overwhelming to me, but I do have one, two, three, four sort of beta readers who are all writers themselves, beautiful writers. All of them happen to be published, but that's certainly not the criteria. They're friends of mine, Um, but they write in different ways and they um, write in different genres in some cases. And so they're able to bring um, eyes to my page that I can listen to. And one of the reasons I can listen to them is because I really believe that these people think I'm a good writer. I'm, so, I'm sorry to, to be so needy as that, but I'm not worried that they're reading it and thinking, oh my God, you know, this poor, this poor woman, <laughs> why does she keep at it? I know that they're thinking, huh, she's not really at the heart of this yet. And, and they're able to say that to me in a way that I can hear that makes me feel both held and also redirected. So um, when I'm working, I revise constantly. I don't draft quickly. I know a lot of people do and do that very successfully. I don't. Um, I have to feel that I'm emerging from a really confident perch from the day before, before I can go forward. And if something isn't working, I, I work at it, work at it, work at it. And I know other writers say, if something isn't working, you know, highlight it, tag it, do whatever you need to do and keep going. And I envy them that momentum and that confidence Um, I really am a stickler for getting something right, because to me, if I stumble, it tells me that I'm I'm not quite sure what the next door is to try. Um, So I'm I'm revising constantly such that what I send to my friends is at a fairly advanced state of development. But I, I will then spend another year, of course, overhauling things and overhauling them yet again. And one of the greatest pleasures is when the scales sort of fall from your eyes and you see what another reader has seen and you realize the way forward um, that you cut this entire scene or this character is supposed to be over here or maybe you want this in third person instead of first first person or whatever it is. Those are moments of such pleasure and clarity. So I I almost find the revision process to be um, the remedy (laughs) for the enormous kind of muddling through challenge of drafting. I often have listeners ask me how people find the readers that they can trust. Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I had a hard time with that um, for a while. I got very lucky in that I worked for a small online literary magazine. It's not very small anymore. It's called Narrative Magazine. It's based out of San Francisco. And when I was in my late 20s and narrative was just starting, I was involved, um, we were all of us volunteers always, but I was involved with reading manuscripts and other writers and readers were also involved in reading manuscripts and we would sort of talk to each other. These are submissions coming into the magazine that we were reading. And we would talk to each other about stories that came in. You know, I really loved this one. What do you think? What's working? What's not working? Should we bump it up to the editor? Do you think we might run this? And in doing that, I started to get to know the sensibilities of some of these other readers. And they were, of course, budding writers or sort of writers early in their careers themselves. And those friendships have grown. Um, so I, you know, one of my my favorite readers who has a novel out this week, actually, the same day as my memoir, uh, was a fellow reader with me at Narrative 15 years ago. And um, and we've just kind of grown up together and, and we can send each other things no matter how messy they are and know that it will be loved and held safe. So I do think there's a a really vibrant ecosystem of literary magazines and people who read for magazines as interns. It's all unpaid. 
Um, and, and I think trying to get involved with a literary magazine, no matter how small, is a really good way to find a community of people who are interested in that and, and available for that. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? This question makes me smile because I'm a total coward. I, I have heard so many writers who and see so many writers on social media who are working with, um, you know, these these submissions platforms and they're sending out stories and they're getting them back and they're sending them again and they're placing things and they're they're capable of this kind of resilience and and courage. I've I've always been a sort of um, touchdown pass kind of writer, and that has both served me and been a great disservice to me. So. When I first graduated from college, I had been a creative writing major and I had a thesis advisor who was very supportive of my work. And he suggested I send out one of my short stories to four literary magazines. And I got handwritten notes back from the editors of two of them saying, this isn't for us, but you know, maybe send us another. And I was devastated. I had no idea what that meant. I, I was just so clueless about how, how difficult it is to place work and how it has to do with luck and timing and talent and skill and maturity and all of these things. So I, I felt very gun shy and, um, and didn't send out more work for a long time until I got involved with this literary magazine and then was uh, sort of commissioned, frankly, to write for them. So there was no risk or very little risk involved with that. And it wasn't truly, I am embarrassed to say, with a few exceptions, um, it wasn't until I wrote my first book, which was the novel, A Satire, Early Decision, in my 30s that I I properly submitted um, and, uh, and it got picked up very quickly. I subsequently wrote a book that did not sell. My agent was very excited about it and sent it out. And we had editors who said, God, we really love this. We just don't know how to market this. Um, And that's in a drawer. And then I wrote my memoir um, and my agent was able to place it very quickly. So I'm kind of an all all good or all bad, (laughs) you know, kind of submitter. And um, I don't think that benefits me. I think I should be braver and I should be producing more. Uh, I mean, I'm going to try to to move toward that. Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? I wanted to talk about a writer who is a, a friend of mine um, and phenomenal. Her name is Meg Howry. And one of the reasons I thought she was a a really fantastic writer to, to think about in addition to her work on the page is that Meg uh, was a professional dancer. So she left her home in Indiana to go to Juilliard as a teenager and did not um, go to college, did not receive an undergraduate education because she was dancing professionally by then, which she did at a very, very high level for 10 or 15 years. And after she retired from dance, she decided she wanted to be a writer. And so she taught herself to write. Um, and she's obviously brilliant and enormously gifted, but I have been so moved by watching her career because she didn't do the thing that I think so many of us think we have to do, which is, um, you know, study English in school or indeed even go to school, or, you know, and then get an MFA or somehow be connected to kind of sophisticated networks that are already plugged in to the publishing industry. I know that at times I have felt like there are impenetrable walls that surround New York City, that surround publishing. And that's a that's a fantasy. It's um, it doesn't mean it isn't very challenging, but that's a myth. And 
Um, Meg's third novel was published a couple of years ago by Putnam. It's called The Wanderers. It's about three astronauts who are training to go to Mars. Now, this is actually happening in real life right now. There are astronauts who are sealed into what are effectively giant tin cans, you know, in parts of Arizona to see how their bodies handle 18 months in um, sort of... Uh, these private spaces and can they be separated from their families and their friends and fresh air for that long because that's how long it's going to take to get to Mars. So she puts one woman and two men, an American um, and a Russian and a Japanese astronaut in one of these capsules and lets it play out. And it is a remarkable, remarkable book and the reviews were rapturous. So that's called The Wanderers and the, the author is Meg Howry. I also think that um, Maggie Nelson is a genius. She's a cultural critic and art critic and literary critic who lives in Los Angeles and who writes sort of genre expanding uh, nonfiction to date, some memoir, um, a fair amount of poetry, sort of prose poems in her books. And to me, she kind of blows open the doors of what's possible in terms of how we think about ourselves and others, and also how we think about what writing is supposed to look like. Um, I feel the same way about Patricia Lockwood, who is a poet who also had a memoir out called Priest Daddy a few years ago about her father, who's a a wild character and a Catholic priest in um, the Midwest. And she, too, writes with this kind of verve and a word hoard or vocabulary is astonishing. um, And she is playful and delightful. And when I read these writers, I just get out of my own head and my own imagination, which to me is quite limited. And I'm reminded how huge the world of writing is and that you can pull anything off, really, you know, if your heart is in it and you work at it enough, anything is possible on the page. And where can listeners find you online? So I have a website, which is LaceyCrawford.com. And Lacey is just L-A-C-Y. There are a couple lovely people who spell it L-A-C-E-Y, and they're very tired of getting (laughs) emails. Um, So L-A-C-Y-Crawford.com is my website. I'm also pretty active on Twitter, and my handle is Lacey underscore Crawford on Twitter. I am a recent um, joiner of Facebook and Instagram, and I'm not very good at them. So I don't actually even know what my handles are. In any case, people who are good at that will know how to find me. Lacey, would you read some of your work for us now? Absolutely. I'm going to read from the opening of the memoir, uh, Notes on a Silencing, that I've just published. And I want to issue a very bold content warning that this is a very straightforward account of a sexual assault that happened to me when I was 15 years old. So if this is upsetting, if this is going to be provocative in uncomfortable ways, please know that and go with love (laughs) if you switch off because I know how that feels. This is chapter one. October 1990, fifth form. That means junior year. One evening around 11 o'clock, a young man called a girl on the phone. This was a few decades ago, and they were students at a boarding school, so he called the payphone in her dorm from the payphone in his. Someone answered and pounded up three flights of stairs to knock on the girl's door. She was not expecting the call. He was a senior, a grade ahead, but a couple of years older, and he was upset. Crying, she thought, but it was hard to tell because she barely knew him. 
He said something about his mom, swallowing his words. He wanted the girl's help, please. She knew the senior because she had helped his friends in math class. He joked in the hall to her once that maybe she could help him sometime. It had been a surprise that he'd sent his attention her way, and this phone call was a bigger surprise. Something must have happened, she reasoned, something very bad. She had no roommate that year and lived across campus from her friends, an unfortunate turn of the school housing lottery. Her parents were a thousand miles west. It will tell you something about her naivete and maybe her character, that to her, the strange specificity of the senior's request for her help and no one else's is what made his summons feel important and true. School rules forbade leaving the dorm at that hour, but she knew, as they all did, how to let the back door close without rattling the latch. She skirted pools of lamplight where campus paths crossed. His room was in shadow. He pulled her up through the window. She landed, in his hands, on a mattress, and she felt and then dismissed surprise. Beds could sit beneath windows, of course. There was nothing wrong with that. His roommate was on the bed, too. She didn't know the roommate at all. Neither of them had shirts on. Neither of them, she saw, as her eyes adjusted, had pants on. She said, what's wrong? They shushed her and gestured toward the wall. Each student dormitory incorporated at least one faculty apartment where the head of the dorm lived, sometimes with a family. Mr. B's apartment was right there, they warned. Her voice through the wall would bring him in, blazing. He would catch her, she realized, after hours in a male dorm with two undressed seniors on a bed. Suspension, shame, her parents' shame, college. There was a moment while she waited for the one who had called to tell her how she could help him. He pressed her down. When his roommate did this too, she understood that she could not lift these men and would have to purchase her release a different way. Four hands on her, she said, just don't have sex with me. Instead, they took turns laying their hips across her face. Their cocks penetrated her throat past the pharynx and poked the soft back of her esophagus, so she had to concentrate to breathe. The repeated laryngeal spasms in her throat, the gag reflex, caused her throat to narrow and grip their dicks rhythmically. When they were finished, she climbed out the window and walked back to her own dorm, keeping to campus roads this time. There were two security guards who patrolled the grounds in a white jeep. The kids called them Murph and Sarge, and they saw everything, but they did not see her. She found the door as she'd left it, gently ajar. After a long shower, she slept. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting Lacey's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. So the only way I could find a way to write the memoir um, about my time in boarding school was to find a way to tell the story of the assault, which was at the heart of it, as simply as I could. And I found that every time I tried to write it with feeling and descriptive language to make it good writing, it kind of fell flat because there's nothing artificial about this experience for me. And I couldn't access my memories by trying to be writerly about it. What worked 
was getting off the phone with a police officer who had just given me some very bad news about the investigation and sitting down and writing it as cleanly as I could, just the bones, what happened precisely. And once I did that, I was able to access a different form of telling that didn't feel writerly at all to me. It felt very true. So what I want to ask or suggest is that you choose an experience from your life, and heaven knows it needn't be traumatic, an experience that maybe you've wanted to write about or thought would be great on the page. And instead of writing it beautifully, instead of writing it in a sophisticated and writerly, I'm going to submit this somewhere manner, write it as cleanly and as accurately and as honestly as you can. If you were standing up before a jury and you were asked to say what happened, What would you say if you had only three or four minutes to do it so that they understood exactly what happened to you start to finish? I have to tell you, I was shook for the rest of the day after Lacey read me that story of being assaulted as an innocent teenager. For so many of us, there are echoes of familiarity and solidarity and witnessing the stories from other women who have been sexually assaulted and raped. I know it wasn't easy to listen to it. It also feels so important to recognize the truth of violence against women and the power imbalances that punish women for telling their stories, for telling the truth. Read Lacey's memoir, Notes on a Silencing. It's out now. I was thankful that she shared a writing prompt related to how she was able to distill that experience into such effective writing. I know she said that we don't have to use the prompt to write about something traumatic, but it worked so well for her that I'm going to try it too the next time I'm trying to write about something that cuts too deep. If listening to the podcast has been helpful in your writing practice, become a supporter on my website. With the recurring monthly contribution of as little as $2, you can help me ensure that these interviews continue to happen. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Woman Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.